As teachers, we may ask for and act on student feedback periodically throughout the semester or from semester to semester. What we often don't hear as faculty is a student perspective on their overall learning experience. In this episode, we talk with a student about listening to and placing value on student voices in the design of learning experiences. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Jessamine Newhouse and Teresa Highland. Jessamine is the Interim Director of the SUNY Plattsburgh Center for Teaching Excellence and a professor in the History Department at SUNY Plattsburgh. She specializes in the study of pop culture, gender studies, and teaching and learning. Jessamine is also a recipient of the State University of New York's Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. She's the author of Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers. Teresa is a non-traditional student in the BA MST History and Adolescent Education Program at SUNY Plattsburgh and is looking forward to a career as a high school teacher. Welcome, Teresa, and welcome back, Jessamine. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. Today's teas are... Jessamine, are you drinking tea? I am, and it's prickly pear cactus, which is a good tea for an introvert. Like, don't touch me, stay away. It's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. Teresa? Mine is a Chinese-style gunpowder green. Nice. That's very good. And I'm drinking a pure ginger tea today. And I have golden monkey. I feel like I needed to treat myself today. <laughs> As we're recording this, we're waiting for election results from the national election. So some of us haven't been getting a lot of sleep because we're checking all the counts. Yeah, regularly. so the golden monkey is totally self-indulgent. <laughs> very necessary. We've invited you here today to talk about the student experience during a pandemic and about ways in which we could productively incorporate student voices into professional development activities. And we're practicing that right now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the impact of the transition to remote instruction last March. What was that like from a student perspective? Oh, yeah, that was intense. <laughs> it was really one of those disorganized and disorienting sort of things, which I thought was completely understandable on the one hand, because every single person involved, the students and the professors were being asked to do something they had never signed up to do. The professors teaching our in-person classes had never signed up to be online professors. The students taking the in-person classes were obviously taking in-person classes for a reason. None of us really wanted to go online. Everybody had a different way of doing things when we got online. Sometimes I had people who were trying a couple of different things because they weren't sure what was actually going to work. And of course, we had tech issues and just all kinds of things. So it was pretty confusing and a little bit messy. And it made things a lot more difficult than they had to be, I think. But it was also the only reasonable solution. Because what else could we have done? Just closed everything and gone, oh, well, we'll just try again in the next spring. Like, no, that's not going to work. In my case, too, it was particularly difficult because my father died in February, like three weeks before we went on break. And so going online removed my main source of outside support. 
which was going to classes because it forced me to get up and leave the house every day. And it put me around people in very controlled environments. And it had been helping a lot. And then all of a sudden, that got taken away. So for me, it was also a depressing experience because now I had to deal with all of this stuff by myself, completely by myself. I think that's an experience that more people experience than we ever really acknowledge. The death of a family member or just any other kind of extra stress on top of the moving online that was happening. So I think it's important to acknowledge that students and faculty were experiencing these things, which just added to the complexity of the situation, the stress of the situation for everybody involved. It's like I've been saying that 2020 is the worst year of my life, even leaving COVID out of it. Because other things have happened too that I'm not going to get into, but it's been the worst year of my life, even without COVID. And now we've got a pandemic on top of it that's not making anything better or easier to deal with at all. But at least we don't have any social strife or any other types of stresses <laughs> in society this year. No other major global crises happening. Things are so peaceful and I'm completely expecting a peaceful <laughs> transition of power to happen any minute now. <laughs> Are things better this fall in terms of the adjustment to is still unusual environment for teaching? Yeah, it's not an easy answer. I would say yes and no. The yes comes from the classes I've had that have moved online, either kind of officially they moved online recently when we started having COVID cases at Plattsburgh, or they moved online for me unofficially when I asked for it, which in and of itself was a long and complicated and messy process. In that case, I think the people who are offering online options were much better prepared and knew what they were doing. So there isn't that feeling of disorganization and confusion with the online classes, because by this time, the people offering them have figured out how they like to do it, have figured out the best way that works for them and their students. And so that is very nice and organized. Unfortunately, for the in-person option, I would have to say not so much, because we wound up with some really weird situations with in-person learning. At the beginning of the term, I had five classes, only one of which was in a classroom that was ever meant to be a classroom. And that classroom can usually hold about 40 students plus the professor. But right now, because of COVID, they have it at half capacity. So I had a class of 40 people, but only 20 of us could be in the room at a time. So that professor had to do some kind of strange things like divide us in half. And half of us came on Monday and half of us came on Wednesday. And we all met by Zoom on Friday. And then my other classes were in rooms that were never meant to be classrooms. Three of my classes were in a converted ballroom. And they took this ballroom and divided it in half with one of those dividing walls that doesn't really do anything except give you a visual separation. So if something was going on in one classroom that was loud, you could hear it in the other one. If someone was trying to use the microphone and they didn't quite get the tech right, all of a sudden their lecture was going into the other room too. The lighting was horrible. The acoustics were awful. There were cases where I had professors who didn't really want to use the microphone and I couldn't hear them. And I had cases I couldn't hear my classmates at all. So of course, there was no socializing at the beginning of class. And we were all sitting six feet apart and wearing our masks and we can't hear each other and we're not socializing. And it kind of got to a point for me where I actually felt like I was almost being punished. And I know that's not the case. I know that nobody was punishing anybody. But that's kind of how it felt. I felt like I was walking into something in the Hunger Games or something. When I walked into these <laughs> classrooms, it was just such a stressful experience and isolating. I was in a room with 40 other people and I've never felt so isolated. I lived in Japan in situations where I was like the only non-Japanese person for miles around for months on end. And I felt less isolated than I felt in this classroom. And I've been reflecting lately. One of the things that makes me non-traditional is I already have two master's degrees, one of which is in teaching English to speakers of other languages. 
And one of the things that got really hammered in that course that I did was making a classroom environment pleasant to facilitate learning. There is nothing pleasant about being in a poorly lit, bad acoustics, socially distanced Hunger Games classroom. There just isn't. And oh, I dropped one of the classes. I moved online for other ones as much as I've been able to. And so it's better now, but only because I forced it to be. And I got help from most of my professors to make it be that way. Gamification can be a useful learning strategy in terms of motivation, but perhaps not to the Hunger Games extreme. (laughs) I mean, I know some people would be super motivated by that, but maybe for like two class sessions, not forever. And (laughs) not in the punishment aspect of it, but in the actual games aspect of it. I'm not that kind of nerd. I had one student describe it, too, as being such a powerful reminder of the terrible pandemic raging around the world, that the experience of sitting in a socially distanced classroom in masks was not only so different from an ideal learning environment and expectations about the learning environment, but a very visual, emotional, intellectual reminder that a potentially deadly virus is circulating among us. And that that knowledge, that anxiety, that reminder in the classroom was, of course, a huge obstacle to effective learning. And I think that point too about the expectations is really interesting because to me, what it kind of feels like whenever people talk to us about, oh, well, we're giving you the in-person classes because that's what you asked for as students. We asked for what we knew before COVID. We didn't ask for Hunger Games classrooms. (laughs) And there are a lot of people right now, I think, who prefer being in person so strongly that it doesn't matter to them. And they would rather be in person in a Hunger Games classroom than be online in their own living rooms or whatever. And that's totally valid. I'm not criticizing them. But for some of us, that isn't working at all. And it's not at all what we were expecting. And in my case, I think I was very optimistic, but also very naive, because I did not expect to be in that kind of situation. I thought, well, maybe we'll be wearing masks, or maybe we'll be social distancing somehow. I didn't think we'll be wearing masks and social distancing in rooms that were never meant to classrooms. And it's going to feel awful. Yeah, Teresa's perspective has really powerfully reminded me of how much of effective teaching and learning is that community piece, that welcoming classroom and that inclusive classroom and how much of that emotional component goes into effective learning. And especially for brainiacs and geeky academics, we're so focused on our subject and and content coverage, and we forget just how central the emotional connections, the human connections, and the productive professional relationships in the classroom are. And even just think of it in terms of practicalities, like having a group discussion, which is one of the whole points of being in person to begin with, is that you have that give and take back and forth between the students and the professor and between the students themselves. And if you're in a classroom where nobody can hear what's going on, or you're in a classroom where if more than one person talks, it's so echoey that nobody can hear or understand, that entire purpose cannot exist. Yeah, we want to make sure that we're moving beyond the sage on the stage. We want to make sure that we're using active learning in these things. And technology can be a really powerful way of doing that in ways that maybe people didn't realize going into the pandemic and are discovering. Did you have any classes where there were some people face-to-face and others in Zoom at the same time? 
because that presented even some additional challenges that many of us warned against, but it was something that many colleges and many faculty tried to do. And I think a lot of people are backing away from that once they realize that it's difficult to maintain two separate groups in some type of community. I have not had that happen simultaneously. I had one professor who offered the same class, two different sections, one in person and one online. And in her case, that was actually how I was able to unofficially switch to online before she moved my in-person section online. But I haven't had anyone trying to do a simultaneous in-person while doing Zoom situation. Because it's not possible to be in two places at the same yeah. time. <laughs> Last I checked, the science is not up on that. <laughs> yeah. The only way I can imagine that would work would be if you recorded the in-person class and then posted it on Zoom, which then removes the simultaneous aspect and presents a whole different set of issues. Yeah, I would say here at Plattsburgh that what was, at least for a while, being called that high-flex model has not really been utilized very much. We had quite a few people trying it, but I don't think there's going to be as many people trying it in the spring. No, I think people have now officially learned the way they want to teach. Yeah. <laughs> it was the experiment. It was a massive experiment. <laughs> yeah, an international experiment on higher education. <laughs> Glad that we had this opportunity. Yeah, right. As someone planning on a career in teaching, what are some of the takeaways from this experience that you'll bring into your own future teaching? So I spend a lot of time, first of all, in my own head for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that I literally am alone in my apartment with my budgies most of the time these days because of <laughs> online learning. But I've been thinking a lot about things like, what does it mean to do various things? Or what do various things mean to begin with? So for example, what does it mean to teach and learn? What does it mean to educate? And what does it mean to be educated? Why do we do certain things in the classroom? Why do we require term papers, as opposed either in general or as opposed to something else? Why do we require students to memorize information before they take a test instead of allowing open notes, open books, or cheat sheets? Why do we do these things? And what changes can we make to support the fact that this is an extraordinarily stressful time on all levels? It's like everything happening at once for everybody all the time in every location. There is no such thing as taking a break anymore, really. There's no break from some things. So what can a teacher do to help eliminate or limit a source of stress? Because let's face it, school is a source of stress. Even if you want to be here, even if you love learning, even if you could easily be a student for the rest of your life, it is still a source of stress because for most of us, something about our future is riding on this. Something about our future is riding on our success here. And it's not just, oh, am I going to have the knowledge I need? It's also, am I going to have the grades that I need to be attractive to employers? Am I going to have the grades that I need to keep my financial aid? If I lose my financial aid, what do I do? Am I going to be out on the street with my birds trying to find some basement to live in or something? Like, what's going to happen? And these things are all concerns that are floating around in people's heads to varying degrees and varying levels. So my question as a teacher is, what can I do to lessen that burden? And I think it can be hard because especially at the high school level, I think there's a lot that comes down from above. My impression anyway, is that there's a lot that comes down from above that I can't change. But what can I do about the things that I can change? If I were teaching at the college level, I would be inclined right now to say things like open notes, open books, or cheat sheets on exams. Fewer high stakes exams, replace them with more low stakes exams either no term papers or shorter term papers, replace the term papers with something like reflection essays. So much depends on what you're trying to accomplish. 
And I think sometimes at all levels of education, we do things because that's how they've been done. And especially right now, that's just not going to work forever. And I think right now, whether we like it or not, we've been handed a golden opportunity to try some new things and to see if these new things work at all, to see if they work better, to see if maybe we think that they don't work better, but they work better in this situation. So we'll keep them for now and go back to the old way after, whatever. But right now is a time I think that all educators, past, present, and future, need to be really thinking about what it means to do those different things and why certain things are happening in the classroom and how they can change what's going on in the classroom to limit a source of stress that a lot of people just don't have the energy for anymore. These are all things that most teaching centers have been suggesting to faculty for quite a while, but faculty don't always listen to that. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you about this is that at your institution, you gave a presentation to faculty about this. And I think that maybe hearing student voices can provide a little more compelling story to faculty than if they just hear it from people who run teaching centers. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, from my end, it felt really nice. It was like, oh, wow, these professors have all shown up. And it wasn't just professors. There were some people from the library as well. But like, oh, wow, these people have all shown up to listen to what I have to say, and they care about what I have to say. And I know that there were people who probably watched the recorded session later. So that was good. But I also know a few things. One, I'm kind of weird in that <laughs> I'm weird in a lot of ways, like, but in all harmless ways, I promise. But in this case, I'm weird in that I had that opportunity. There are thousands of students here, and I'm the one who got to have that conversation. So most of us don't get that chance at all. And I think, too, a lot of students, especially younger students who are new to college, feel like they're not going to be listened to. They can say whatever they want to whoever they want, and nobody's going to listen to them. And why should they speak up anyway? And I don't have any power in the classroom. The power is all with the professor. And I don't have any power at this institution. It's all with the administration. And that's assuming that you can even figure out what's coming from the professor and what's coming from administration, because most of the time, we students don't know that. Let's take attendance policies as an example. I don't know what part of attendance policies is coming from administration and what part is coming from the professors themselves, just as an example. So if I have a problem with an attendance policy, I don't really know who to talk to directly. And I don't know how to address it, maybe, as a student. So for me, yeah, it felt fantastic to sit there and be able to talk to these people. And they were all great people and very receptive, I thought. But I also know that that's unusual for a lot of students' experiences. And I know, quite frankly, that had I been 18 and in my first semester as a freshman, I don't know if I would have been willing to do that because I sure. would have been terrified yeah. staring down that group of people. Even though they were very nice, kind, friendly people, I still would have been absolutely terrified. So I think that there's a gap in what students can actually do and what they think they can do. And it's not necessarily a gap that the students can bridge, or at least it's not one that they can bridge alone. And that this is a case where professors need to use the power and privilege they have as professors to help bridge that gap and prove to us students that if we speak up, that you will listen, basically. Yeah, I think incorporating more student voices into faculty development is an awesome goal and it's not easy. I don't think it's easy to do for some of the reasons Teresa mentioned. And it really depends on your student population and your campus culture. Our students at SUNY Plattsburgh are incredibly polite and respectful and 
have learned to be passive learners in their high school experience. Not everybody, but that's the general culture. Speaking directly to power with a face, even if it's on a screen via Zoom, a whole posse of professors would not come easily to most students at any point in their career, maybe when they were senior, maybe. So I've been looking for ways to get student perspectives into our programming. I used a model created by Jessica Tinkelberg at the Claremont Colleges Teaching and Learning Center. She created a model called What Your Students Want You to Know, a series of discussions where a faculty representative or a staff or mentor figure on campus who worked with certain groups of students checked in with their students, polled their students, and then reported to the faculty. And we did that this semester. So like the coordinator for international students came and spoke to a group of faculty, here's what your international students want you to know. The assistant athletic director came and spoke, here's what student athletes want you to know. So that's a way to get student voices into the conversation without having that direct, perhaps confrontational sense. Teresa is a non-traditional student. I've worked with her before. We had a class together during that horrible, impossible semester. And she's also my advisee. We share love of pop culture, so we got that in common. She came, actually, it was during advising, and she came to me for advising and got to talking about what her experiences had been like in face-to-face classes. I am teaching this semester, but it's totally online. So her perspective combined with, I knew her to be confident enough and able to articulate very clearly her experiences and not get weirded out by facing down some professors. And it's self-selecting too. With the faculty development events, people come who want to be there. So it's not like a mandatory event. Now listen to students. I know the Center for Teaching Excellence did have a student advisory board for a while. It's been quite a few years since that board was in place. And it's very difficult to ask students, especially right now, to take on additional labor of any kind, even if it's just offering a perspective. What I'd like to do is have a selection process to have two student Center for Teaching Excellence fellows next semester, but I've run into a major bureaucratic red tape snarl. A shout out to state universities. It's like a major undertaking to offer a $200 honorarium to a student as part of a student fellowship. So stay tuned to be continued. I'm trying to wrestle that. Unfortunately, I'm just awful at paperwork. So we'll see. But that's how Teresa ended up at the roundtable. And it was the most successful one, I think, of the semester so far of the presentations and discussions. People were very, very interested. We had a really good experience with students sharing their feedback in our Accessibility Fellows Program, which is a smaller group of faculty with seven faculty at the time. And we worked with our disability services office essentially to recruit a few students to come and share some of their experiences and the technology they use with that group. But it was like a very closed situation. It was a small situation. It was not a recorded situation. And I think the students had a good experience based on their responses afterwards. And the faculty all had really great experiences that have impacted all of us in really deep ways by having those structured conversations about something specific. But I think there's something about it being kind of a tight-knit group. Someone they trust is who recruited them to have the conversation. None of their faculty members were there. 
it was different faculty members, but it was really powerful. So I think the more we can find ways to include those voices of students in safe ways, ways that they perceive as being safe, the better. Well, especially right now, it's just so crucial. It's challenging. We have to figure out ways to do it, though. At Teresa's Roundtable, my colleague John Locke, Director of Technology Enhanced Learning, shared that he had really been struggling with some of the decisions he'd made about his moving online. Did he do the right thing? Was this the best? And hearing Teresa and talking with her really powerfully confirmed that, yes, he was on the right track. And that kind of feedback above and beyond what we might be asking from the students as we're actually teaching them just can be so incredibly helpful right now. Wow, that's what we all need. Is this working? Teresa, like you said, we're trying something new. How will we know without the student perspective? I've been fortunate this semester to also have a TA, which I don't generally have for my classes. That has actually helped a lot to get that student feedback. I'm getting her feedback on her perceptions of what's happening and what she thinks might work based on her own experiences as a student in other classes. But also the student voice is getting filtered to me from her because they feel comfortable talking to her. And so although I don't generally use a TA in my classes, I found it really important to do it as I was transitioning to teaching online because I hadn't taught online before. And it's been really powerful. She's helped me think a little bit about what to do next semester based on what this semester was like. She co-created some of our assignments and activities that we've been doing. And it was really important to the design of the experience to have her perspective. And I think maybe I didn't even realize that as much until we were just talking with you right now, Teresa, like how much that actually was really valuable to the students this semester, because she's acted as a sounding board. Even over the summer, I ran a few things by her before the semester even started. Oh, that's good. Remember, too, though, this has to be a two-way street, because if you get a bunch of students, you can ask for all the students' perspectives that you want. But if the professors are not listening and responding, it's screaming into the void. And you can get me, you can get all the freshmen, you can get the seniors, you can get the grad students, you can get anyone you want. And if we're screaming into the void, then that doesn't really produce any kind of results. And I think there there are kind of multiple problems here. Like I mentioned, the problem with convincing students to speak up to begin with, getting faculty who maybe are less inclined to listen, to actually listen and pay attention and follow through. And making sure that the students actually feel like they've been heard and that even if something doesn't happen immediately, that something is happening behind the scenes. Because I think sometimes they can say something and then nothing happens and then they go, well, oh, you're asking me for my opinion again. Well, the last time I gave you my opinion, nothing happened. So why am I going to bother this time? So yes, it's important to focus on that one end of how do I get the students to share their feelings and their thoughts, but there's also how do we get the faculty and administration to respond in a way that encourages that to continue. And here's another problem in this context of meaningful student feedback. We have a serious issue in academia getting meaningful student feedback just from our own individual classes, even during the before times. The student evaluations of teaching are deeply flawed. They're often administered very poorly. And every faculty member has a horror story about student evaluations of teaching. They've got some incredibly mean, miserable, sexist, racist, homophobic, derogatory, hurtful, demeaning comments, and they will remember them forever. 
And for many faculty, that's the only experience they've had with directly soliciting student feedback. And it's terrible. It's the worst possible place to start. And it's not good for students either. It's often presented in a way that they don't understand what they're being used for. If it's the first time they've been asked for their opinion, they're going to feel just like Teresa said, what's the point? They don't know how it's used in evaluations. So in this already really pretty toxic way we have established, because like Teresa said, that's how we've always done it. And then to try to wrestle us out of that and have a more meaningful student voice and student perspective in faculty development. I think, like Teresa said, the, the problems are multiple. The challenges are many layered. And with those kinds of evaluations, I think that also gets back to the point of students don't know where a problem is coming from. They might know that there's a problem or they perceive that there's a problem, but they don't know where it's coming from. So something that's actually an administrative problem gets taken out on the faculty. The racism and sexism, that's obviously a problem with the student. We know where that problem is coming from. And that's something that needs to be dealt with, but it shouldn't be on the, the shoulders of one individual professor to deal with that. So just to be clear, I think that's completely inappropriate of the students and they should not be doing that. But consider it too from the student side, the, the side of the non-racist and non-sexist students who are angry about something legit, but they don't know who to direct it at. They don't know how to yes. direct it because they've never had the chance to before. That's right. I was thinking, even for myself, I have some feedback I really want to give to a professor of mine right now. But I'm kind of sitting here going, what's the point? I'm sure this person has tenure and isn't really going to pay attention. I'm sure that this is how this has been taught forever. Why am I going to do this? And it's a really harmless thing that I'm talking about. And I know that it's a professor thing, not an administration thing. And I'm obviously not going to go out there and be horrible to this person because I'm not that kind of person and there's no need for it. But I'm literally sitting here going, I want to give you feedback on this part of how the class is taught, but why should I? Because I don't think that anything is going to happen if I do. And a lot of times too, remember, there are situations, of course, where students have the same professor over and over again, but that doesn't happen all the time. So very often we give feedback and we never see if anything comes of it because we never see that person again. So we have no idea if anything comes of it. So again, it's that screaming into the void. Why should I bother? That's actually one of the challenges of anonymous feedback to yeah. some extent, right? is like not being able to have the two-way communication or having a dialogue about something. It's kind of a one-way scream one way or another that, that maybe listen to or not, but being able to have a dialogue can be really rich and helpful. And you can ask follow-up questions about like, what do you mean by that? Or have you had an experience somewhere else where it's worked better? Can you tell me about that? I've been fortunate enough to have some of those experience of being able to have the dialogue version of that. And it's so powerful and so helpful. And it helps everybody. It helps the students because we can immediately act. It helps the faculty long term. But I think that's going to work the best in a situation where the faculty is open to feedback and sets up a situation where it's known that feedback will be used. You're telling students how that feedback is going to be used. You're validating the student voice and then also providing that feedback, like why you might not have done something, even though that suggestion was made or whatever. And from my experience, students respond really well when you have that dialogue piece. Yeah, absolutely. But it's something that has to happen from day one of the class. And all these nuances are just making me think about how it's even more challenging right now. So everything is harder now period. Every single thing is harder now. But when emotions are running high and we want to lash out because the world's on fire, 
and we're angry and we're disempowered, which is everybody to some extent and more for some groups than others. And into this like boiling of emotions, we're going to add a complicated dynamic. It's hard. One of the things we've always recommended to faculty is that they request student feedback periodically, either with a forum or with open discussions. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of people, as they've moved into new modalities of teaching, have been doing that fairly regularly. Some people do it every class period, asking what's working, what's not working. And many people are doing it every week in some way. So I hope that's a practice that will continue once we move past the current crisis as faculty become more used to inviting feedback. And it is important that faculty respond to it. So just collecting the feedback doesn't do much if students don't see any sort of response. But if faculty would respond to it, and sometimes it might be by saying, well, I understand why you would like this change, but here's why I don't think we can do that at this time. But at least having that dialogue, whether it's anonymous or not, at least they're responding to the voices that they're hearing and letting people know that the voices are valued and taken into account. And not responding in the moment, not being able to take action in the moment is still reasonable. It is a pandemic. It is really difficult to shift gears right now. And if it's something that's just too big to change, maybe it does need to wait until next semester. But communicating that, like, hey, I have my barriers too. I found that students are really responsive to that. They recognize we're humans if you actually admit that you're a human. Yeah. If you act like one. Exactly. Yeah. And it's important to keep in mind that you don't know our outside lives, but we don't know yours. We only know what you share with us. And like Rebecca was saying, the more human you seem to us, the more likely you are to get feedback, the more likely you are to get useful feedback, I think, and the more likely you are to actually be able to develop that dialogue with your students that will actually result in something fruitful and good and not just a bunch of pent up complaining at the end of the term. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that humanizing element is so key to online learning. Michelle Kansky Brunk talks about humanizing online learning, so important. And Flower Darby talks about the online teacher presence, but it's also face to face. It's the whole undertaking of teaching and learning. Communication is so key. And as it's sort of my shtick here, I mean, there's a lot of nerdy academic brainiacs who just don't communicate very well, who may be trying something to cope with this unprecedented time with all the best intentions. But if it's not communicated clearly to students, they're not going to get it and it's not going to be effective. So the clear communication part seems even more important. Teresa mentioned our ability to be flexible and to really focus in on the key student learning outcomes. What is it we actually want students to be able to do at the end of the class and really focusing on that and how can we humanize those and be as flexible as possible? And I think this conversation is making me think too about just how important the communication part is. Like I had a student tell me she was having trouble connecting with a professor. And I said, okay, so do you emailed her? She didn't answer the email. We have Zoom class. It's like, okay, so when you go early, the student always arrives early. Is the professor there? She's like, yes, but she doesn't have the volume on or she won't talk to me or something. That's one thing about teleconferencing. Your face is right there. How can you not try to communicate with a student when you're staring into each other's eyes? Like, why? It's that ability to communicate and just to build that rapport and those connections. And it's hard right now because everything's harder. One thing I was really grateful for in the spring, ironically enough, is that we actually did have those few weeks of in-person learning before we went online because I actually knew my professors 
and I knew them as people. Like I didn't know every detail about their lives, of course, but I knew them as human beings who stood in front of my classroom and had a presence and had mannerisms and I knew how they acted and I could kind of guess how they would react to certain things. And I think that without that experience, it would have been a lot harder and a lot more miserable, really, to go online with so little notice. One of the things that I'm noticing from this conversation and the last few conversations we've had on Tea for Teaching is how much communication and relationship building is important to learning. It's so important to underscore that those two things are key to learning and reducing stress. Those are all really fundamental to learning. And we focused a lot on technology as we've shifted more to online pieces of teaching. But those elements are important regardless if there's technology involved. And it really gets back to the foundation of things that we need to be thinking about as teachers. And it does not have to be a touchy-feely, squishy, non-rigorous way of connecting. I think one reason Teresa and I work so well together is neither of us is a touchy-feely, squishy person. We are not warm and fuzzy at all, but we've established a good rapport around our subject, around the intellectual exploration, and now more around teaching and learning. So you can be yourself. You don't have to transform into the motherly, fatherly, grandfatherly professor that everybody loves and you just want to be around. Or the professor who once were post-COVID is always hugging their students. You don't have to do all that. Please don't hug your students. (laughs) (laughs) Not without explicit consent, at least. Oh, my God. But that connection and that communication and those productive professional working relationships are so, so key. So I think we always wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, what's next for me is making it through the rest of the week. Yeah, I have one more class tomorrow and I have an exam this week, but it's a pretty easy exam, so I'm not too concerned. In my immediate future in the spring, I did actually manage to get an entirely online slate of classes, which is important for me because I am one of those people who really shouldn't be around people right now. And I'm not talking emotionally. I'm totally talking in terms of my physical health and the fact that if I get COVID, it's not going to go well for me. So I was going to say I'm looking forward, but I'm looking towards that. (laughs) (laughs) And it remains to be seen if I'm looking forward or kind of feeling trepidatious or what's going to happen with that. Yeah. So I guess in the immediate future, it's just kind of plugging along and doing the best I can and making the best of a really horrifying situation. I'm not sure I can better that particular goal. But I'll say that scholarship-wise, I'm currently editing an anthology of insights into effective teaching and learning from women and underrepresented faculty. I've got the working table of contents, and the contributors are working on their revisions, and it's going to be a fantastic collection. It's the most practical yet inspiring collection of articles I've read about teaching and learning all in one place. So I'm really excited about that. I'm going to be the interim director next semester. So I'll continue working with the teaching center and we're doing a book group with the SUNY Oswego Teaching and Learning Center, hosts of this fine podcast. And I'll be doing some other programming as well. Thank you both for your insights and sharing your experiences. We're definitely looking forward to your new book, Jessamine. When is it coming out? Do you have a timetable? I don't have the publication date yet. 
and I am keeping the deadline to get it to the publishers top secret so I can make sure all my contributors get their revisions done on time. <laughs> Excellent. But hopefully, I would say 2021, I think late in 2021 or very early 2022. Excellent. Good luck for the rest of the semester, Teresa. Thank you can you. do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. And this was a great discussion. And I think all of us should spend more time listening to students and having a dialogue with students about what's working and what's not all the time, but especially in these times. Thanks for having us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.